0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome once again this Sunday morning to the Digital Cathedral. Glad to have you with me today, and we're going to get into some really good things today. We're working our way through 12 areas that I think the Father is going to be working much deeper into our life as we come into this brand new year and even points beyond. So we're up to number six this morning. I had no idea that this was going to take as many weeks as it did. I really planned on doing the 12 in one week, but it looks like we'll get through three more this morning, which will take us up to nine. And then we'll do, ours. we're going to do six, seven, and eight this morning. Then next week I'll finish it up with nine, 10, 11, and 12. So we'll kind of review these as we go along. But these are really fundamental principles and foundational truths that I want you to recognize in your life so that as the Father begins to work them deeper. These are not going to be necessarily new revelations, but as He works them deeper, the revelation will continue to unwind and be like an onion. You know, you just take off one layer, one as you go through the peeling. You just take off one layer at a time, and that's kind of how these twelve work. So we're gonna we're gonna uh, work our way through three more this morning, and I want you to pay really close attention <clears throat> because. Um, I don't, I, I don't, I don't want you to be taken by surprise when things come up, situations, circumstances, or lessons the Father's trying to drive home in your life as to exactly the purpose of what He's trying to accomplish. I'd like to read a parable for you this morning from Matthew chapter 20. If you have your Bible, I don't normally read long scriptures to begin with uh, because honestly, I don't want to lose your attention. Uh, you know, I, I've sat in church before and when the teacher or whoever was reading a long passage, my mind would drift off someplace, and I so I, I tried just to hit two, three verses, but I wanna read this parable this morning because I think it illustrates what it is that I wanna teach on this morning, as well as it gives us some insight into what grace is about and how it actually actually looks in operation. So I'm gonna read 16 verses, and I'll, I'll read them rather quickly, and then we'll come back and take a quick look, and then I'll move forward uh, from that. Again, so good to have you with me. Isn't it nice to be able to sit and, and uh, come into a gathering like this without having to get dressed up and get in your car and drive somewhere? I mean, I I, I love this. Uh, I try to wear a decent looking shirt when I do the recording uh, for Sunday morning at the Digital Cathedral, but honestly, I've got jogging pants on, I've got my house slippers. I'll, I come in here, I'm really relaxed, but I do try to look presentable from camera up, right? So I hope you're relaxed and you're enjoying the journey as we make it together. All right, let's read a little bit from from Matthew chapter 20. Let let me start with verse one. This is a parable that Jesus told. Now remember a parable is a story from natural life that carries spiritual implications, but it is a parable. So you, you can't always take parables as literal. He's trying to convey a message. So I want you to try to catch the message that Jesus is getting across in the 16 verses of Matthew chapter 20. Are you ready? He says, for the kingdom of heaven, and Matthew calls, usually refers kingdom of heaven, whereas uh, Mark and Luke will say kingdom of God. Matthew was writing specifically to Jewish people that had kingdom, that had heaven concept, so he's trying to show them where the kingdom is coming from. So we could we could uh, paraphrase this, and Jesus says, uh, for the for the kingdom that is from heaven, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. Right now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard to work. And he came about the third hour, and others were standing in the marketplace. And he said to them, "You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give." Uh, to you, so they went. And he did the same thing about the sixth hour and about the ninth hour, now watch this. At about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle, not working, not being productive, and he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said, because no one hired us. You know, I have a sneaking suspicion, I can't prove it from scripture, but I have a sneaking uh, suspicion that these guys that were still standing there at the 11th hour at the end of the day may not have been the best workers, and so nobody hired them. They were kind of the the leftovers that nobody uh, was desperate enough to actually hire them. So uh, he said to them that that were at the 11th hour, uh, he said, I want you to go into the field, and likewise, they went into the field the same, the same way. So when evening had come, verse eight says, the owner of the vineyard said to the steward, call the laborers and give them their wages. Oh, he's setting this up for some bad stuff. Beginning with the last to the first. And, and when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. Can you smell trouble coming? but when the first came they supposed that they would receive more but they likewise received a denarius same pay and when they had received it they complained against the landlord saying the last men have worked only one hour and you made them equal to us how dare you (laughs) who have been here and have carried the burden and the heat of the day and worked all these many hours verse 13 but he answered one of them and said friend I'm I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree to work for the denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. Verse 14. I wish to give if I wish to give to the last man the same as to you, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is it your evil eye because I'm good? So the last will be first and the first will be last for many called, but few are chosen. Man, this is, this is about as good an illustration as I can find in a parable that Jesus told about grace. Grace is the currency of the kingdom. The more grace that you extend, the more, the more, the more currency that you spend, the more kingdom that you receive. This parable illustrates so well, and I'm sure that Jesus was digging at the the listeners of this parable. This illustrates so well why religion detests this message of radical grace, this hyper-grace message, this this full-blown pure grace message that we teach and have been teaching for a long time, why religion hates it so much. First of all, it, because it's very it's very unfair. Grace is unfair. Look, look at this 14th verse. Look, You would look at this and say, man, this is not fair. He, he said, take what is yours and go your way. He said, if I wish to give to the last man the same as to you, he said, isn't it lawful for me to do what I want with my own things? But they're standing back saying, man, this is not fair. We've worked all day long. We've been in the field all day long and you're paying these lazy workers that really didn't do a whole lot the last hour they were out there. Are you, you're paying them exactly the same as we get. So church people, religious people say, look, God, grace is not fair. Are you gonna extend to them the same grace that you have extended to us that have worked so hard in the kingdom? It's very unjust. Look Look at verse 15, look at verse 15. The, the the owner said, "Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? If the owner wants to give equal grace to all, whether you worked all day or just an hour, isn't it up to him?" He said, "Is is your eye evil because I'm good? In other words, are are you gonna are you gonna play this game because I'm good? Now does all of a sudden my goodness become evil in your sight?" And boy, religion has said that. Religion looks at, at pure grace and says, it's it's not right, it's evil, it's unjust, it's unfair. <clears throat> and religion hates this message because it shows absolutely no favoritism. It pays the grinning drunk that comes in at the last hour the same wage. It The Father gives the same grace, the same love, the same consideration as to the guy that's been Uh, pastoring and ministering this gospel for over 50 years so the guy that's been you know the preacher that's been there said look how faithful I've been look how much I've sacrificed look all I've given and you're going to give grace the same measure of grace to that guy over there that grinning drunk that comes in at the last hour or hasn't really done anything to merit it it pays absolutely no more for the hard work and that bothers religion that irritates religion so really, what, what was going on here is the workers didn't trust the one in charge to value their dedication and their work. Did not trust. They thought they earned more based on their evaluation. Grace, what, you know what grace reveals? Grace reveals what's always been in our heart. I have, I've, I have people, and not, not as much as I used to have, But people would say to me, and the favorite phrase was, grace is just a license to sin. You're just just excusing people's behavior and their sin. Absolutely not. Do you know what grace does? Grace reveals what has always been in our heart, but has been covered up with religious facade and veneer and acted out in hypocrisy. The the, the, the The landowner, by extending the same pay, the denarius, to the last hour worker as the first hour worker unveiled what was in the first hour worker's heart now the landowner did this on purpose he really did if he had been thinking logically he would have not have called he would not have called the last hour worker in first to give him his denarius if he was wanting to avoid conflict if he was not if he was wanting to cover this grace up that he was going to extend he would have called the first hour workers, those that had worked all day, he would have called them in first and give them um, giving and he would have given them their money so that they would have departed and not seen the favor that he gave to the ones that worked the last hour. It's almost like this landowner took, took uh, uh, joy in, in taking those ones that thought they deserved more and just kind of rubbing their nose in, in the grace the, the landowner was trying the motive of the workers. And he, and he exposes that in verse eight. Verse eight, here, here they come. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to the steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. I'm telling you what, logic would have paid those first workers, those hard workers, absolutely first. But that's not the way grace works. That's not the way grace works. Grace always exposes the heart. Grace, grace doesn't hide, but it takes delight in revealing itself to those who think they deserve extra because they've been working longer or have done more or have dedicated themselves to a greater extent, they think. Sure enough, exposed them. Look at verse 12. They, they got all upset about this. And they said, the last men have worked only one hour and you made them equal to us. You mean that guy down to the bar. You're gonna show him the same love, the same grace, the same mercy that you're showing me that has been doing this all of my life. Why, that's just not fair. How dare you, how dare you do that? And so the landowner responds and says, look, it's, it's my stuff, I can give it as I want. Now, are you just viewing what I did as being wrong because your eye is evil? You're gonna look at, what I, at the goodness that I've extended as being, as being wrong or evil? When you think about it, why should religion be upset if the Father pours out his abundance of grace on everybody equally? Why would that upset anybody? We're getting the grace that he promised us. We're getting the love that he promised us. Why would it offend us? Why would it irritate us? If we look at somebody and we say, they didn't deserve it why, why Why would we be why would we think they don't deserve it we're going to we're going to talk about that this morning actually brings me up to number six one of the things that god is going to begin to deepen in your life and it brings me right to number six this parable brings it home brother it brings home the power of grace it brings home the love of the father for all whether, the, whether the, the son that stayed at the father's side forever and always did what the father wanted, he wasn't the prodigal that was wasted all of his, his inheritance down in the pig pen on, on riotous living and girls and fun and drink and whatever. You know, it just brings it home. You know what the father's gonna work in us to a deeper level? Number six, are you ready? He's gonna work into us a love and a tolerance for other people a love and a tolerance for other people. We all cut our religious teeth on them and us. And that's exactly what this parable, parable is about. The ones that worked all day had separated into two groups. Those that worked all day and those that didn't work all day, it was a them and an us. And, and the ones that had worked all day was the us. I mean, here, here we are. And we, 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 we in religion did the same thing. The us, the us were in, relig- in religion were us that prayed the magic prayer us that were dedicated, committed, us that tithed plus gave offerings, us that were there every time the doors were open, us that were uh, loaded down with three or four ministries, working our fingers to the bone. And them were those out there that never prayed the magic prayer. Uh, they were not part of us. They were, they were separated off from us and we, we were not to get too close to them because we thought if we got too close to them, that they might suck us into sin, suck us into what they were into, and we would no longer be part of us. We, we thought we could lose what we had done to make us part of us, and if we lost it through our behavior, our actions, we'd become part of them. See, we had no relationship with the world, which is kind of a mystery. Now that I'm sitting on this side of grace, it really is a mystery to me how we were supposed to win them that weren't part of us. Win them to Jesus when we had little or nothing to do with them. Because we were afraid that they would suck us back into being one of them. (laughs) And we no longer be one of us. See, we had no relationship. So you know what we had to do? Because we had no relationship with them but we wanted to try to win them to be one of us, but we had no relationship because we didn't want to associate with them because we might get sucked off into being them. So we developed evangelism programs because we had no relationship. Jesus developed a relationship. Paul developed a relationship. The gospel, the kingdom is about relationship, but we had no relationship with people. We had no relationship with them. So we developed evangelism programs. We we would do the Romans Road or the Evangelism Explosion. Uh, You you remember the Evangelism Explosion program? Uh, You would would say to somebody that was not one of us, that was one of them, uh, if you were to die today and stand before God, why? And he would ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? That is a setup for works. Of course, we we would say, well, because I I fed the poor because I was good to my neighbor, uh, because I didn't beat my wife, because I uh, was good to my children. You know, we it, it would invoke a works response, but we had no relationship we, 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 with them or the Father, really. We had no unconditional love, unfailing love of the Father in us that was emanating out of us, that created a presence that would draw people. So we had to create evangelism programs to try to make them Become one of us. What the Father's going to work in us is a is a deepening of love and tolerance for other people. And I think we're going to see a rekindling of the sayings of Jesus that in Matthew uh, chapter five, six, and seven, the Sermon on the Mount. I think we're going to see a rekindling of the of that be uh, of that model of how to live out the kingdom. Jesus, without a doubt, is our example when it comes to uh, ethics, when it comes uh, to how to treat people. Paul's our, more of our theologian. He talks to us about the finished work. He talks to us about uh, reconciliation. He, talks to, he gives us a, a good theological foundation, but Jesus really is the model for behavior on how this, when this theology takes root within us and the things we're talking about, how it is actually lived out in daily life. I mean, let's face it. Jesus spent far more time with them than he spent with with the us. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were the us, and us Gentiles were the them. Uh, The thems were those that did not keep the the laws, the ones that were the the deep, dark sinners. Jesus spent all kinds of time with them. It's impossible for the love of God to well up inside of us. If If we're living this and we're experiencing it, and this is why he's gonna take us down another level in our love and tolerance for other people is so that that love can begin to be expressed in a more profound, powerful way. You can't be filled with the love of God without it seeping out through every pore of your of your being. Jesus told us this, Jesus tried to express it. He tried to get it across in that, that verse that, probably one of the first verses you ever learned when you were a kid in Sunday school, if you were like me and were raised in all of this, you learned John chapter three and verse 16. I wanna read that verse for you because we made that verse into something that isn't. John chapter three, verse 16 says, "'For God so loved the world.'" See, the cosmos. he didn't, doesn't say, "'For God so loved the Christian.'" For God so loved uh, those that were in the us group, but he didn't have a love for those in the them group. He so loved the world right he's not the christian it's not what it says he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son love, love was what motivated the father his love and tolerance for other people no matter what we were involved in how how dark a world that we created for ourselves he loved us and sent his son for us now now here's where religion gets the them and us he sent His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So, the, so religion made the two groups of those that believe on Him and those that are perishing, the them and us. Now that's not what, you know what this verse is, is getting at, what this verse is saying, and I'm gonna read it for you in a minute, out of the uh, mirror, because Francois de Troy really nails it now. The, the word believe, I've taught you and taught you and taught you, that the word believe is not something, it's not what you do. Believing is an effortless response to revelation. When the Father shows you something, you will believe. When you see it by revelation strong enough, you will believe. And the word perish, we've, we've made that word perishing, like that's a sentence to hell. Like if you don't believe, you're going to hell. Perishing has nothing to do with hell. Perishing is simply a disconnect from life. It's like the branch no longer being connected to the vine. So people that are perishing aren't realizing that they are connected to a life source. They are blind to it. They need awakening to who they actually are, that they have a source of life that they are connected to. And the reason they're not connected is because they haven't seen, therefore, they don't believe. So what the verse is getting at is that he loved the world and he gave his only begotten son so that when our eyes are opened, when we see it, then all of a sudden, we begin to live in it, and we move from that kingdom of darkness, and we move, move over into the kingdom of God's dear Son, where he has translated us. Now, verse 17 explains that well. In verse 17, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, didn't send his Son to make a them and us so that he might condemn the thems. He sent his son into the world so that the world through him might be saved. Now, let me read John chapter three, verse 16 out of, the, out of the mirror. If you don't have a mirror Bible, man, I would suggest that you get one. Go over to, over to Amazon. It's a work in progress. And my good friend Francois Dutoy uh, has done a fantastic job in, in uh, doing a great paraphrase on this. Listen to the verse 16. He says the entire cosmos is the object of God's affection. I love that. And he is not about to abandon his creation. He's not. The gift of his son is for mankind to realize their origin in him who mirrors their authentic birth, begotten not of flesh but of the Father. In this persuasion, the life of the ages echoes within the individual and announces that the day of regret, this is the perishing, and announces that the days of regret and sense of lostness is over. That's what the perishing is. It is a sense of lostness. So the father, uh, in that 17th verse, look, he's extracting all of the condemnation out of this. Condemnation comes off the table. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Condemnation is not part of the formula. Condemnation, like I say, is 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 off the, the table. You you can replace that condemnation with the one thing that never fails. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his son into the world to save it so-so, to make it whole, to make it heal, to reconnect it, to reconnect it. So our job, at, my job right now is to teaching your connectedness to the life source so that you no longer perish. There's a lot of people that prayed the magic prayer that are still perishing. Let's be honest about it. They're still perishing. They're jacked up, messed up. Nothing works well for them in life, and it's because they're still disconnected. They they think they got their ticket to heaven because they prayed the prayer. They call that believing in Jesus. That just because you prayed the prayer doesn't mean you believe diddly squat. Really, you did it so that you don't have to suffer. You think some consequence because you don't you don't want to perish. He didn't send his son here to to do that kind of thing. Luke said he sent his son into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. It was a twofold journey, seek and save. He didn't just seek, but he also saved us. So here's, here's, here's what's happening. The Father's gonna work a deeper acceptance and love into your life for those that maybe back in your religious days you considered a them. So when I was putting this together and I was thinking about, Father, what, what are you really working in us? I heard very clearly that I'm working into you a love and a tolerance for other people. You as the long-term worker in the field, he's developing a tolerance in you that you don't, you're not offended by the guy that comes in the last hour. You're not offended by the person that you don't think deserves back in your religious state, would have deserved the love or the grace of the Father. He's flushing the last vestiges of that out of us so that we come to number seven, right? Where all judgment, number seven, all judgment is gonna cease. All judgment in your life will cease. This is huge. <sighs> judgment comes because we have highly developed opinions. We're very opinionated. We've, we have developed opinions that have been cultivated through our lack or through our, our, our uh, depth of, uh, of what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. We've become very dualistic in our thinking. We have, we've pigeonholed everything into right, wrong, good, evil. It's, it's called binary dualism. It's called binary dualism. And, and what that means, it's kind of a, a term, you know, you, you'll hear bounced around, maybe you've never heard that term, binary dualism. Uh, church, uh, Religion is very binary dualistic in their thinking. They, they make it, and it comes from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't avoid it. Everything is right, wrong, good, evil, black, white, left, right, up, down. And, and everything is pigeonholed into those. into those. That's not the way the Father thinks. The father thinks, and the the uh, opposite of binary dualism is spectrum thinking, and that means everything doesn't fit into right, wrong, good, evil. That's the wrong tree. Paul, here's what Paul said: See, you can't you can't be a, a binary dualistic in your thinking. You can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you understand that, Paul said, watch, all things work together for good. Now that that takes it out of the realm of everything being right, wrong, good, evil, uh, what you want, what you don't want, okay? Basically, judgment comes from eating this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We make determinations. We have cultivated, and religion religion helped us in this. Religion is all about eating at the wrong tree. It actually is. It's, it's eating and determining what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. So usually, we think God is on the side of what we judge, as good and evil or right and wrong because of what religion has taught us. Religion has taught us what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. Therefore, we think that's the way God thinks. It's not the way God thinks. The flesh profits nothing. Isn't it amazing, isn't it amazing that we think God hates what we hate (laughs) and God likes what we like. That's the way we were conditioned. I was conditioned like that for years and years, so were you. But when you came out of that and you walked into grace, and you begin to see the favor of God poured on everybody equally, regardless of behavior, that begin to mess with your dualistic thinking. Because God was pouring good on the just and the unjust. He was raining on the just and the unjust. He was shining the sun on the just and the unjust, spiritually speaking, right? They were just as blessed. There are people that know nothing about your kingdom that are extremely wealthy that, that have been blessed in everything they do. They follow, they, in many cases, they follow kingdom principles. They, they support the widows and the orphans and the poor and good causes, and they've lived, they've lived a, a, a pretty good life in all of this. And you know what? They've been blessed because of it. So our, our right and wrong and good and evil has not always panned out. In, in fact, that developed so quick in people Watch Watch how it sprung up in Mark chapter 9, verse 38. Mark chapter 9, verse 30, 38, and uh, I want to read down through verse 40. Mark chapter 9. Let me get back here to Mark chapter 9. I want you to watch this in operation even before Jesus went <clears throat> to the cross. <clears throat> All right, here we are. Mark chapter 9, and let me pick it up with verse 38. John said this, he said, "'Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us.'" Not one of us, one of them. Look what he said. He said, "'They don't follow us, and they're casting out demons in your name, and we forbid them.'" Boy, I tell you what, we came against those guys. We we judged them harshly, because they weren't part of our group. They weren't part of the in in crowd like we are, Jesus. and we forbid them because he does not follow us. My gosh, he's not a a Baptist, he's not a charismatic, he's not a a grace guy, he's not with us. Jesus said, don't forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. In other words, he's, he's gonna see the light about this, he's gonna see truth. Now Jesus makes a statement, I'll tell you what, that is mind blowing and the religious do not ever consider this. I'm considering it big time today as, as I'm eliminating judgment in my life. I will tell you, it's a hard one to get rid of. It's easy to judge. Jesus said this, he who is not against us is on our side. Let me say that again. He that is not against us. You know what? There's a lot of people out there today that are not against Jesus. Not against him at all. There are, there are even, um, boy, I want to be careful what I say here because I don't want you to flip me off right now. There are even groups out there, many that we would call new age, they're not against Jesus. They just they have not had the light turned on. But Jesus says, there can't anybody do what they're doing in my name, but what soon they're not going to be able to speak evil of me because he that is not against me is with me. And here's what I'm saying to you. I'm saying that we need to be very careful about who and what we judge. There are people that I think are moving the kingdom forward. They may not call it the kingdom. They may not call God what you call him. I don't think God's offended by being called the wrong name, but they're moving in the direction that we're moving. They're not against us. And Jesus said, if they're not against us, they're for us. See, love, Jesus said here, love covers a multitude of sins, of missing the mark, of the harmatia. Love love covers that up. Let's be aware this year in our, in our need, the dropping in our need to judge people, to judge actions of other people. Let's forget about the need to call people out, and instead, uh, let's let love change people. Let's be agents of change, through love. Uh, let's be peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers because they'll be called the sons of God. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples because you have love for one another. Not just the in crowd, but for all. You know, one of the side, side um, effects of judgment, and this is one reason why I think we need to really get rid of it in our life, one of the side effects of judgment is a, it's a spiritual drain on us I mean, judgment wears you out. It because it's a it's a soulish activity. It's when you when you become ju- you you won't find joyful judgmental people. Judgmental people are always sourpusses. They they have no joy in their life. They have no spontaneity uh, of abundance of love and life. They're just you know they're sourpusses because judgment is not of the spirit. It arises out of our out of the strength of our soul of our of our will our mind of our emotions. It also takes the pressure off of us when we don't have to judge any longer. It really does. It, takes, it totally takes the pressure off of us. Now, I'm going to read you two verses because I'm telling you he's working on us a cessation of judgment because the Father and the Son have worked that into themselves. That's who they are. Can I read you two verses that are absolutely mind-blowing? Look what it says in John chapter John chapter uh, 5 and verse 22. John chapter 5 and verse 22. I'll guarantee you never heard this one in church. You never heard this verse taught on in church. John chapter, I'm going to give you two verses you never heard taught in church. John cha- chapter 5 and verse 22. Jesus said this. This is read. He said, for the Father judges no one. <laughs> Man, that cuts cross great that you want to drive a religious person crazy, tell them father doesn't judge anybody. He absolutely judges no one. Jesus said, but he has committed all judgment to the son. So do you get that? The father judges nobody, but has committed all judgment to the son. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world but so that the world through him might be saved. All right, so let's establish that. The Father doesn't judge anybody. Have you got that? Now let's come over in just three chapters. John had such a powerful revelation of love that the others didn't have, that he saw things in a little bit different light. Look what it says in John chapter eight and verse 15. John chapter eight, 15. Now we just read where Jesus said, Father doesn't judge anybody. Now watch this, verse 15, (laughs) verse 15. He said, you judge according to the flesh. This is what Jesus said, Read, You judge according to the flesh. Isn't that true? That's how all our judgments are set up. All the way that we learn to judge people in religion and in church was based on flesh actions. He said, you judge according to the flesh. Now Jesus said, I judge no one. Now that puts us in a real problem to judge because Jesus said, the father doesn't judge anybody. Then he turns around and says, I don't judge anybody. So where's the judgment coming from? Judgment comes from ourselves, looking at our actions. And when we judge ourselves harshly, do you know what we set ourselves up to do? To judge other people. We, 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 put on, we project onto other people our shortcomings. When we judge somebody else, I'll, I've seen it so many times. How many, back in the 80s and the 90s when all of the top name, some of the top name evangelists Uh, were being exposed for their sin. They were the very ones that were preaching and judging harshly those that were in sin. I learned a long time ago, I watch preachers that judge sin harshly that are always on people for sinning. They're covering something in their own life. They're projecting onto others themselves. The Father has no judgment to project. The Son has no judgment to project. Therefore, they don't judge anybody. So any judgment that you conjure up, any condemnation that comes, is what you have built within yourself. All right? So let me, let me give you number eight real quick here. I don't have much time. I only got maybe about 10 more minutes. But number eight is this. He's going to work this deeper into your life. Number eight, he's going to show you that he works as us. He works as us. This is gonna become so strong in your life that everything that you see happening now, you're gonna stand back and you're gonna marvel at it and he's gonna say, man, that pearl of wisdom that I just said, that wasn't me. That came out of my spirit, that was him. Jesus fully recognized that going on in his life. In, in John chapter five, well, let's work John just a little bit more. In John chapter five and verse 19, Jesus said this, "'Most assuredly I say to you, "'the Son can do nothing of himself, he zeroed himself out. He can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he sees the Father do, the Son does in like manner. He's an imitator of God. Isn't that what Paul said? Be imitators of God as dear children. Jesus is saying the same thing. He's saying, I don't do anything of myself. He said, it's it, it's what I see the Father do, that's what I do. Now let's let's carry this one more. Let's come over to John chapter 14 and verse 10. John chapter 14 and verse 10, the Father is gonna work this in you so that you understand that you only do what you see the Father do. He And, and, and what Jesus is saying is the Father that did this was me doing it. And he, he says it very specifically in John chapter 14 and verse 10. He says, do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority but the Father who dwells in me, he doeth the works, he does the works. So Jesus is saying, look, Jesus came to a a place in his life where it was the Father in him that did the works and Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing and he did it in like manner. Now what the Father was to Jesus, the Christ is to us. You're gonna stand back and you're going to say, it's not me doing the work, it's the Father doing it as me. It's the Father in me that is actually doing to work you, you you sense that union you sense that it really is the vine that is supplying to you the branch everything that you need all the nutrients all the vitamins all the, everything the supplements to produce the fruit the love the joy the peace long-suffering gentleness goodness meekness mildness all nine fruits of the spirit come as him doing it through you as you I used to work for Jesus a lot of work. Then I went through a phase where he was working through me, so I had to make sure the vessel was clean, did everything I could do to make sure I was a good person that he could work through. But I've come to a place now, I'm zeroed out, he works as me. It's not me sitting here teaching you this morning, it's him teaching you. The words that I speak, they're not my words. The words that I speak are the words of the Father, okay? I'm beyond that, like right now I'm just flowing with you, I'm just talking to you about what he is working in us on a deeper level. Paul said it like this, Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, he said, I've crucified with Christ, and it's no longer that I who live. He said, but it's Christ who lives in me. and the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Not faith in the Son of God, wrong translation. King James got it right. Faith of the Son of God. So your life is so intertwined with him that you can't tell if it's you doing it or he doing it. But when you stand back and look at it, you can see his footprint on everything you do, on everything you say. That's what he's bringing us to that place of. That's why he's working no judgmentalism in this. That's why he's working a tolerance and a love for other people is because he's bringing us to a place where we can look at our life and say, you know what, I have great confidence, I'm not worried anymore, I don't have insecurity, I have no fear, because he's the one that is working in me. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ that lives in me. In this life that I'm now living, I'm living it by the faith of the Son of God. Now John said it like this, John said it like this. We just saw how Paul said it, Galatians 2.20. John said it like this. Let's go to the end of the book in 1 John chapter four. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, I read two verses, 16 and 17. He says, and we have known, or we have experienced experientially, and believe we've had illumination, <clears throat> the love of God that he has for us. God is love. That's the, that's the sole definition of love. God is love. Everything that God does comes out of love. So where religion has taken words like anger, venge, vengeance, uh, uh, punishment all those things that made us fear God there's no fear in those because they all come from love and there's been a bad translation a bad spin a religious spin put on those words they mean intense emotion they you know if, if God is angry he's not angry at you he's angry at things that harm you things that hurt you just like you are with your children if your children do something that's wrong you're, you're you know you're not so mad at the child as you are the thing that's wrecking your child. If your child's on drugs, you're not mad at your child. Your heart goes out. You love that child. You're angry at the drugs. You're angry at the drugs and your 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 punishment wants to be toward that drug to get those drugs off the street or whatever. And that's the same thing that God is. God is love. Pure love. Pure 100% chocolate. There's no there's no nothing in him but chocolate right and we've experienced it we know it god is love and he that abides in this love that lives it out and this is this is why all these 12 this is what the 12 are about It's bringing us into a greater love walk that's what it is that's what it is he who abides in god he abides in love and god in him is one that is a lover God is a lover. So John said John that. So he's bringing us to that point. Now watch. He's setting a foundation here. The 16th verse is talking about right where we're at today. He's working this level of love in us by these 12 things that I'm bringing to you. All right? Um, uh, unless he works as us, then nothing of eternal value takes, takes place. The flesh profits nothing. Flesh, flesh gains nothing. Flesh is the wood, the hay, the stubble. I, I've got so much wood hay and stubble from past days that that has already been burned up. The only things that count are the things that come out of love. He's working the love in us love love is that trust bond that ensures what he's about to do that it's going to be good that it's going to be right. when you live and dwell in love, listen to me when you live and dwell in love, you have full confidence you don't have to you don't have to look good evil right wrong what's going to happen to me? You live in love, it's, a, it's that trust bond that everything is gonna to work to your benefit. Everything's gonna to work to your advantage. I, I I don't want to get off into politics, but I'll just tell you what, don't be shaken by what's going on. It's gonna to work to your advantage. It's gonna to work to the kingdom's advantage. He's laying a foundation. There's no kingdom foundation outside of love. This is a time for the sons of God to arise and manifest through a demonstration of love. This is a time for the sons of God to step forward and become peacemakers, not just peacekeepers, peacemakers. You only make peace in a chaotic situation. You can't make peace, you can't be a a demonstration of love unless you don't judge, unless you have a tolerance for other people, all the things we're talking about. Can you see how he's got to take those? And he's driving him down into a deeper level and he's exposing in us things that are holding us back, things that are hindering us, ties and bonds, mental mental pressures and things that that we struggle with that we need to discard. And the way he's gonna discard it is through this flowing out of love. See, love brings us into the union where what he does, listen, Love brings us into a union where it's counted to our benefit what he does. It's so much as one. That hold your, hold your hand right there. This is, this is the way Abraham lived, and, and Paul saw it, and Paul made a, a brilliant observation in Romans chapter 4. Paul saw it like this. Come back to Romans. Hold your finger right there. But I want to come back to Romans 4, and I just want to read you verse 21 and verse 22. Watch. This is him being fully convinced. This is is Paul's uh, observation of Abraham. You know, having a child when he's way past child, bearing years and coming to him at 75. The whole thing was crazy. It was mystical. It was beyond the senses. And Abraham was convinced that what God had promised, God was able to perform as Abraham. Abraham looked at this situation and said, I have, I'm have. i fully convinced that you can do this as me. I, I, I'm the body that's gonna produce this son, but it's you that's doing it. We're doing this, we're, we're intertwined in this together, and it's you doing it as me. And he went on in verse uh, uh, 22 and said, and therefore, or the conclusion was, It was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. It was laid to Abraham's account when he finally came to the place and said, it's it's the father doing this, it's his work. It's what Jesus said, it's the father in me, he doeth the works. Abraham was saying, it's the father in me, he doeth the works. The father's working in us everything that he needs to work so that we can stand back and say, it's the father in me, he doeth the works. So love is being perfected in us. Love is now being fully demonstrated in us. It, come back to 1 John 4. Let me hit the 17th verse, and I'm, I'm, I'm hurrying. I'm trying to get through this. It says, love has been perfected in us, right? We just read that in verse 16. He's working that love in us. God is love, and we're walking in that love. It's been perfected. It's been matured in us, verse 17 says, so that we can have boldness in the day of judgment. All right, the day of judgment is not a forward-looking thing. The day of judgment happened at the cross when every sin was judged. We have confidence in that day of judgment. The day that sin was judged was at the cross. You have boldness in that judgment. There's nothing that was lacking. Everything everything that was contrary to the Father was judged and we have confidence in that judgment. It was a finished work, nothing left to do, nothing. So do you understand what he's talking about now in verse 17? He's not talking about you standing before the Father, the Father exposing everything you did before the world, running your life on a video screen. I mean, I've heard all of that before. That's not what he's driving at. He's wanting us to be perfected in love And when we're perfected in love we look back at the cross and we say that was a perfect work I I'm I'm bold in my standing I have no fear no condemnation because of what took place at the cross and so he says okay as that transpires in your life? You're gonna find that because as he is So are we in this world now? This is, this is where we really live in confidence, and this is where we walk in confidence is the last part of that 17th verse. So there's two parts in verse 17. First, we have boldness in the day of judgment, because the day of judgment has already transpired. We know how it came out. We're walking in the power of that day of judgment. When sin was judged, we have nothing to judge left within us. The Father judges no one. The Son judges no one. Any judgment arises out of yourself because you've eaten at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you've made determinations. The Father doesn't eat from that tree. He makes does not make those determinations. He says, I'm going to work everything to the benefit in your life because I am love and love always works to your good. So the things that you do now, you're living as he is. That's a right now word, body of Christ. Digital cathedral, that's a right now word. It's one that we are on the threshold of seeing experientially in our daily walk, that we are walking out as he is. Now, let me, I've gotta share this little heavy revy that I, I saw this week. I've read that verse, I start teaching on 1 John 4:17 back in the 90s. As he is, so are we. I started teaching you on that in the nights. I saw something this week I never saw before. Notice it says, as he is, so are we in this world. It doesn't say as he was or as he will be. It doesn't especially it doesn't say as he was, it says as he is. Now, that's a post-cross statement. It's not as he was. Post-cross. He is fully what was prophesied pre-cross. Now, here's something I I had asked myself this week. I had asked myself, well, how is he today that he was not pre-cross? All right, look, he's an overcomer now, he is. He has overcome death, the flesh, and the devil. Pre-cross, that was a forward look to what he would accomplish, all right, so we are not looking forward to what we will accomplish, as he is, so are we in this world, which means, listen, which means that we are conquerors and total victors over death, the flesh, and the devil, whatever you want to ascribe the devil to be. I'm not going to get into a big debate about the devil, I don't care what you, what you think he is, you think he's a man in a, in a red suit running around with a pitchfork and a long tail, that's fine. If you think the devil is your carnal mind, that's fine. Whatever you think the devil is, he's been defeated. That all that has been defeated. It's under your feet. As he is, not as he was. We're not looking forward. Jesus, look, as he is, he's at rest in the finished work. He doesn't mean he doesn't do anything. He's at rest, that means he finds a peace within every circumstance. When you live out of the finished work, you find a peace in every circumstance. He lives from a place of victory. He's, Jesus is no longer trying to get to the cross, to the joy that was set before him. He's looking at the cross in his rear view mirror. He's looking at the cross from a finished work. And you and I are not looking forward to getting to victory. You and I are living from a place Of victory this makes us as he is in this present world we've got to change our perception these 12 things that I'm teaching you about that he's taking deeper that becomes our perception that makes us as he is victors over death over flesh over devil in this present world now today so let, let me just set you up let me just Go over these eight real quick, and I'm done for the day. I'm landing the plane, all right? I'm bringing the train into the station. He's working into your life a deeper resolve to hear the Father better for yourself. You're not going to have to chase around to find a prophet to tell you what he's saying. He's detaching you more and more from the world systems. He's connecting you, number three, more and more to other brothers and sisters all over the world. That's what we do at the Digital Cathedral. We're connecting all over the world. Number four, revelation is unfolding that will enable you to solve the daily mysteries and problems that you face in life. Number five, he's weaving into you a grace without limits. No law, no no restrictions, no hoops. Number six, we talked about it today, a tolerance and a love for other people. Number seven, all judgment is ceasing in our life. And number eight, we're starting to understand, we're starting to see the revelation that he is working as us. Let me tell you something, that's building a big, powerful spirit force that this world is not going to be able to contend with that is encased within your flesh body. You can't do any of those things. It's him that does the work in you, amen? All right, I'm done, I think that's far enough. Next Sunday morning, I'll finish it up with 9, 10, 11, and 12, and I have a passage of scripture I want you to read. I want you to read and meditate. I'm gonna spring off of Matthew chapter 13, Matthew 13, verses 18 through 23. I want you to meditate that passage of scripture. We come together next week, we're gonna talk about how Matthew 13, Verses 18 to 23 shows what the Father's working in us. God bless you. Good to have you with me today at the Digital Cathedral. See you Wednesday night on Wednesday Night Live and back next Sunday morning. Thank you for your prayers, your support, and your help as we continue to carry this life-giving message around the world. See you next time.